Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we have a super fun twofer for you. I'm so excited to share this one with you. I'll talk about part two when we get there, but first up is Dean Rowland, guitarist for Collective Soul. Now, Collective Soul, to me, are one of the bands that just epitomize the 90s. That whole mixture of grunge and alternative rock, but also pop, and all of that being friendly for the radio and having a lot of hits. Collective Soul are one of those bands that just rank right up there as being so a part of that era. I would say probably this song right here, Shine, is probably their signature song, but they have tons of hits. Well, Dean, well, frankly, Dean didn't have a lot of time. He had about 25 or 30 minutes. I made him stay a little bit longer. I hope that's okay. But we basically just kind of have a lighthearted conversation about what their future, what their summer plans are in terms of touring. Next year is going to be the 30th anniversary. So there's a lot of plans next year for like a big tour and do a documentary and all that kind of stuff. So we kind of talk about some of the lead up to that. And, uh, but he's just a big music guy. And so we just get deep on a lot of the music and what it's like being in a band at this point and when you became a rock star and what do you what would you do if it all went away and all that kind of stuff. It's just a fun, lighthearted conversation. I will tell you, I had to record this one on my phone and whenever I have to do that, the sound quality is never quite as good, but it's totally manageable. You'll get it. Um, but anyway, hope you enjoy this one. Dean called me from his home in San Diego. Okay. Where are you, by the way? Are you you're in Atlanta? Uh, no, I'm in. I live in San Diego. I've I've lived out in California for several years now. So, obviously, I'm from Atlanta. But uh, and yeah, yeah. So, what made you? Make, I mean, other than the obvious answer that that's where the, kind of the music business is, is in Southern California. I always just associate you guys with Atlanta or Georgia. At least, what made you decide to make the change? Well, uh, we're still based out of Atlanta. Like my and my brother will uh -huh. still live in Atlanta. Um, I still call we, it's it's home base for the band. Sure. Um, I just have to take a little longer flight to to get the band yeah. practice these days. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, oh, that's great. They're like, uh, Dean's gonna be late. I'm, like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, I, I don't know. Like I've, I've I've I lived in New York for a little while, many hmm. years back, and um, then I moved back to Atlanta, and then I don't know. I just something about uh, being you know near the water. Sure. Kind of, kind of help my, my my brain a little bit. Of but course, I, I, I wouldn't want that. I love going back to Atlanta, and I love and I'm there often. You know, where yeah. I, I still consider it at home. My mom's there and family and all sure. that. Stuff. That's wild. So, yeah, and it's a you know it's a, it's a good excuse for my family to come out. Of course, to, you know, get away too. So absolutely, things good. You know? So starting over, what is mm -hmm. the tour that you're going on now? Then it's just you guys. It's just us. So this year we're, we're kind of like doing more of like uh, festivals and mm. that type of that that type of touring. We're playing like in Milwaukee. They do Summerfest every year, yeah. and that's always that's a that's a fun one for us to play. So it's those type of things. And next year we'll be we just recorded and in, in finishing up a new record that we're already next year. Yeah, because next year will be uh, the band's thirtieth anniversary uh, of oh. our, our first uh, commercial release with Atlantic Records. So we're going to, we we filmed a, um, a career-spanning documentary that's going to be coming out along with the new record. And so next year is going to be a, a really busy. Really? Yeah. So a, I mean, vibrating is so good. And it's 
brand new, practically. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's what happens when you, you put a band in, in a pandemic and make a band, <laughs> have nothing else to do. <laughs> Got to go, gotta go make some music. Yeah. Yeah, well, do I, I, We really, like, with, yeah, with um, Vibrating, we... we we have a lot of pride in that in that record, man. Yeah. Um, it was, we, we played it, you know, a lot of those songs last uh, on on the Switch tour last year, and so much fun. I mean, we'll we'll, we'll carry it on through this year too. Good. Yeah, we in the big. I feel like I'm, I'm gonna. I was gonna talk about you guys playing live. I'll get back to it in a second. But I feel like okay. because of the, you know, not every. I don't know if legacy artist in your case is a good word or a bad word, but we'll just call it that because it's been 30 sure. years. No, I don't know if every legacy artist is making music that fits as comfortably with the hits that everyone knows as you guys do. And when I was listening back to Vibrating and all the pieces, sounds like one of the great, like, I was going to say 90s rock singles, but it's, a, it's timeless. It could be a single now, you know? So you guys are still yeah. kind of in the throes of making pertinent topical music that fits. It doesn't feel like a legacy band doing something that's harkening back to their their roots or you know or whatever yeah. they were back then. Well, that's that's very kind to of say. I mean, we take a lot of pride in it. I mean, we and we've had the the good fortune of being able to like do some experimentation over the years, trying different things on different yeah. records and. And I think you get to a certain point, and you know, uh, I think this is our eleventh studio album. You know, you, you find that that healthy balance of being inspired uh, to continue to write and, and, and make the music, finding a familiar approach to it. Like we, we these past, especially on vibrating and maybe the record before, where we get in a room together uh-huh. and record as live as possible. We'll do some overdubs, but recording a record where it's like it feels like it's it, you, as a musician you you know you're playing with the other guys not yeah. playing to a track that's already been recorded it's happening in the moment and that's yeah. you know that that stuff really it matters when you're when you're creating and 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 putting tracks down it's like creates a a little bit of urgency to to the to the music i totally agree you touched on something a minute ago dean which is always been to me the hallmark of collected soul which is your diversity i 
there are in a lot of the rock songs have this sludgy, grungy, almost metal guitar riffs in it. I think of a song like Crush. From the last album, Blood. Oh, yeah. yeah. Heavy, heavy guitar riffs in that mm-hmm. one, you know? But yeah. then, in the same token, you can have a song like December, which couldn't be more opposite. Why drink the water from my hand? Just took my son to a job man You can't run up the world again And it feels like, I can't, I mean, Collective Soul, there's a guitar sound. Those first few riffs, I think, of Shine, Mm -hmm. you hear that and you know you're listening to Collective Soul. But Mm -hmm. in general, the band can be anything it wants to be because you've set this template of doing a little bit of everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I do. And early on, we would get, not that, I mean, care too much but i mean when you're young and you're getting some success and we would get like critique the critics would come out and be like these guys aren't because grunge was and we were victims of of the time they're like these guys aren't grunge they're grunge lie and they were getting we're like we're not anything like that we've never (laughs) even claimed to be any of that we're from you know atlanta georgia we have nothing Uh to do with seattle and that i i love it i enjoy it but it's not, you know, what we, so, and, but so our approach has always been to, uh, we serve the song and whatever that, that spark of inspiration that, that could come from a lyric that Ed 
has, or it could come from like a drum groove, and we're just going to yeah. run with that. We just we follow that and serve that song and see what it means and, and try to get our egos and our individual aspect out of the way and contribute and just see what happens. And what has happened are like a diverse, like you said, yes. array of, of different – I mean, within, within the same framework yes. of what we are, but it's like – It's know, all collective we, soul, but it's all different right. aspects. Yeah. Right. So do you guys feel, ever feel like, uh, you're obviously experimental and you obviously are adventurous when it comes to sound and songwriting. Do you ever feel like you're, you've gone too far? When you're, when you fly back to Atlanta and hang out with the guys and start to jam, are you, do you create something and think that's just not collective soul? Or do you not even put those kinds of boundaries around yourself? We don't put the boundaries. Okay. But, because you, but I think it's almost inevitable that you you end up in some sort of creative box that you have True. to work work consciously work your way out of. And part of it, how we've done it is over the years. Like I have a, a, a I hate saying inside project, but you just you go in like I have another creative outlet. I'll, I'll say, and Ed's done that, and Will's done it, and you go you go away from one another for a little while, and then we you come back and you bring those kind of what you know, almost like I went on a you know a scavenger hunt to, for inspiration for my, myself, and I bring it you know what I found back home to contribute to the mm -hmm. to the group, um, and those guys do that too. And then it's like you know, you, then you let that be. You trust what that is. So it's like sure. going too going too far. I don't I don't think so. Like I don't know. I, I, yeah. I mean, maybe I, the, the one thing that maybe our problem for ourselves and it's all relative, right? Uh -huh. uh, maybe we don't go far enough sometimes. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I never yeah. thought of it like that. Yeah. I should say for any, when you mentioned side project, are you still talking about magnets and ghosts? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. I didn't know if that was still a thing. That's good to hear. Okay. Mm -hmm. yeah, um, we just haven't, we haven't, we actually, um, we're recording a, a new record now, so it's oh. yeah, it's still a thing. It's so we're, okay. we're have, we, we have fun with it. It's just good. So speaking of diversity, I my favorite collective soul song is "Run." Are these times contagious? I've never been this bored before. Is this the prize I've waited for? Now with the hours passing, there's nothing we're And I think I it's because um, that you were mentioning a minute ago about drum loops, that drum loop, which 
has been in other songs, but it never gets old. You guys using it in your song feels very fresh and different comparatively. Can you do you remember anything about the recording of Run? I do. We had finished recording uh, the album Dosage, which uh-huh. is what Run runs on, and the record label came to us and said, "We don't have a hit on this record." You know, like the old, the old uh-huh. record label. Everyone stuff, right? heard the story. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. It's like <laughs> and we're like. Uh, it's almost like I'm kind of out of body experience. I'm like I've heard these stories my whole life as a child growing up, like reading biographies of musicians. Yes. I'm like, oh my god! But kind of had the wherewithal, like take pride in Ed and or it was like, oh, this is just like some kind of rite of passage. This is just a challenge. Uh-huh. This is a challenge. Yeah. So Ed, Ed goes back and writes, run, needs. We wrote compliment and one other one I can't remember. And and it, in my opinion, it was just like it was kind of like a fuck you. Like no, oh, you don't you don't like so here if you don't like that. So maybe maybe you'll like these. <laughs> so that that was like the uh, kind of the inception of it. But as far as like totally. recording, yeah, recording yeah. the. Uh, the um, the drum Anthony J Resta who is one of my favorite people in the world and one of the most hyper talented guys he did the drum program programming mm. on that song yeah and it's it really is I agree with you it's it's he did a few different little tweaks that makes it yes. it's its own unique thing you know one thing well, I did want to mention though mm. um, I was saying earlier we have these uh, Patreon supporters. And I always let them know who I'm talking to, and they can submit questions or comments if they want. One of them, Derek Mansfield, he lives up in Canada, and he was saying that he saw you guys, one of the best live performances he's ever seen. It was at uh, a smaller Canadian music festival called Rockin' the Fields of Minnedosa. Does this ring a bell? Hmm, Minnedosa. Did, did he, yeah. Does he mention who... who who else is on the bill? No, he just says this smaller Canadian music festival. He didn't say when it was either, but he said he saw it and he was completely blown away. It was one of the best live shows he's ever seen. And I'm curious, I mean, you and I, we've seen enough live concerts in our life. Mm-hmm. Not everyone gets that kind of an accolade. Why do no, you I suppose know. it is that Collective Soul does? Do you, I've never been able to see you live, unfortunately. What really? makes your shows so special, do you think? Uh... I don't know. Like I, our approach to the, every live show is to uh, it starts from the inside out, right? So like mm-hmm. the, our the camaraderie of the band, like we actually one of those bands. I mean, that maybe they're few and far between. I don't know, but we, we actually enjoy each other. Like our yeah, company, yeah. like we the, there's a true brotherhood, camaraderie, res, mutual mm-hmm. uh, respect. I mean, it doesn't mean we always get along, but for the most part, there's like this sure. or that thing, and we just get up there and share our passion. We have a lot of fun. Like it's almost shameful. Cause it's like, sometimes I'm up there and I'm like, cause we don't, we don't do, we're not one of those bands and I don't pull it against anybody, but we, there's no tracks going on. We're playing mm-hmm. everything. We're singing yeah. everything. And it's yeah. like, we're, uh, I have those moments on stage where I'm like, Jesus Christ. Like we're literally, it's, it's five of us making all this racket. Yeah. <laughs> and we're having so much fun. If one, if one decides they're not going to do it, like it kind of like, the weakest link of the chain or whatever uh-huh. kind of will fall apart. Right. Uh-huh. And I think that that creates a, a degree of like 
um, I know I used this word early, but earlier, but like urgency is just like, oh, we got to keep this thing yeah. on the tracks, and and it's just shared passion and really having fun with it. And yeah. I think there's an authenticity to that that people connect to because uh-huh. um, it's not like we're doing like kiss fireworks and stuff it's like we're not that kind of band i mean there's there's obviously production and lights and stuff but it really is like um just us sharing the most fun part of our existence well our families but it's like we just really enjoy it i mean not to oversimplify it but we we have a blast up there i think it can be contagious I'm guessing you, I mean, you grew up a music fan too. When Can you oh, think yeah. back to some of your favorite shows that uh, that mm-hmm. blew you away, that maybe influenced how you approach a live show today? Who do you aspire to be, you know? Um, well, I mean, uh, aspire to, to be a better part of us. Uh, but makes sense. bands that I, yeah, but a bit... I mean, my first show that I I'm a I'm a product of the early '80s, so like, uh huh, me too. <laughs> police, uh, NXS, you, you know, oh, YouTube. Yeah. The very first show I went to is uh, was uh, Aha. Oh, really? <laughs> I was yeah, I was in middle school, and my brother took me. My, not Ed, but my other. Uh-huh. We had, I have two brothers, and um, you know, and I went there, and it was at the Fox Theater in Atlanta, Georgia, which. I was blown away. This like this is a magic. This place is a magical palace. And so at that point, I was kicked in. I'm like, I want to. I, I don't know if I want to be on that stage or out here, but I want to be a part of this all the time. Right? <laughs> so, and truth, and I'm, we're actually going back home and uh, we're playing in that in that same theater. We're playing. No way. We played it several times over the years, yeah. but it's been a it's been a few, and it always brings me back. We're, we're we're playing there in two weeks again for oh you know, right on so it's so much fun those things like stick stick with you Heck like yeah life changing um, yes mo- moments that are that are there um, I remember the first time I saw you two that was mm-hmm. amazing on the Joshua yeah. Tree tour so, so yeah yeah and so then from there on like just gosh just I mean anything from I don't know if you know the band Ween. Of course. Ween? Yeah. You're a Ween guy? <laughs> I love Ween, dude. I actually, I went by myself when Ed, when Ed and I first were starting the band. I remember I went to see Ween play by myself just to, like, vibe out. And, uh-huh. <laughs> so it, my, the range of it that takes me, like, a little oh, yeah. piece of that, I, I, I want to incorporate whatever all of those things are. And the common thread of all those bands that I saw and, and that really stuck with me, is the fact that you're you're connecting to their true passion and their joy, yeah. and yes. they're conveying that, and it's like I want to be a part of that. Like I, I'm a part of that experience, right? So yeah. that's that's what I've I kind of taken from that over that the years. That is so true, and, and try to uh, exude that. Yeah, from being on stage. That's why I still love going to shows. Like as yeah. a, just as a fan, I would have seen uh, Elvis Costello. I went to see Ellis Costello uh, here in San Diego a couple of months ago, and just yeah, God, that was like, so much fun. I saw him last summer with Nick Lowe, and uh, yep. it was great. Oh, that's, that's that's I saw it with Nick. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it must have been the end of it's like November. Yes, probably. 
It's yeah. funny you mentioned Ween. I live in Denver, and Ween plays Red Rocks a lot. Have you ever played Red Rocks? Yeah, love it. That's another Did one. That, that, oh, yeah. Okay. Red Rocks is amazing. I thought you might have. And I have a buddy who's been trying to get me into Ween for years. And I like it, but it sometimes gets a little too weird for me, so I've never fully, you know, gone down the rabbit hole or whatever. But they put come here and play Red Rocks a lot, you know, when they're together anyway. Yeah, they're not. I don't know where they are. I don't either. I don't either. But back when they were a thing, they would come here pretty often. Um, okay, I'm curious about something. It, you've been a successful band. You can play anywhere you want, and you can play to big crowds. Something I want to know is if that were to all end, what part about being in a successful rock band would you miss the most? And I'll give you an example. I love this question because I've asked it a handful of other times, and I had Ian Anderson on here from Jethro Tull. Mm-hmm. And I asked him the question, and he said, at the end of, after every show, I go back to my hotel, I take off all my clothes, and I lay on the bed with a beer and watch the news. And that's what I would miss the most. That's like his post-show routine. <laughs> that's 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 wow. Ian Anderson, man. That's great to know, you know. Yeah. So I'm wondering what Dean Rowland's thing would be, you know? Yeah, I think. I mean, if I'm just shooting from the hip, I mean, the uh, obvious thing, getting on stage and playing music with your, your sure. friend, like that. That's, but the hidden aspect is the the brotherhood i miss, yeah. i would miss i would miss the hell out of those dudes because when you're on the road and you finish a show and you're sitting in 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 the dressing room just the five of us no you know no one can come in for just a few minutes like just so we can just decompress for a second and it's those moments when you know mm. you did your job you yeah. played a show you're exhausted you left everything on the on the stage and you, you you're just catching up and doing a quick recap with your buds. That that moment of uh, fulfillment of, of just feeling like, okay, we did it. I'm tired. We finished the city. We're on to the next. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. probably those those ten to fifteen minutes right there. Oh, kind of are like no one can no one can uh, can step into that because yeah. they weren't there. They don't know exactly what that was to. To, to yeah. hold you because we hold each one you know each other accountable. Sure, there's nothing there's nothing like that. I love and that. That's what I would miss more than yeah. anything. I love that. It's just and it's it really is that little window of time. And it, I mean, it, it ranges depending on where we are and what's you know who's visiting us and mm-hmm. whatever. It's a range of five to ten, five to fifteen minutes out of the day, and mm-hmm. that that is would probably be the the one thing that I miss. Kind of the, the, the that that little those moments. I love that. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about something. I was having this debate with a buddy of mine recently about whether whether the '90s were back in the same way that the '80s are back. You know, do you mm-hmm. foresee a time? I mean, package tours are a great way to get bands all together and out there and collecting a really nice paycheck. I I look forward to the day when it's you guys and Gin Blossoms and Better Than Ezra or something playing these large theaters or whatever. That sounds great to me. But there's those 80s retro shows, you know, where there's like 12 bands and each one comes out and plays three songs, like Turning Japanese or whatever, and then they're done for the day. 
do you do you foresee a time when the '90s start having that kind of retro? Because it feels to me like that's not really. I can't imagine a lot of '90s bands going for that. Not that I mind, because I lo- I go to those shows too. I love those shows, <clears throat> but I don't know. Is that a part of the future? Do you think? Yeah, I mean, it already is to some degree. I mean, we've done those kind of packages with with Jim Bosses, in fact. Yeah, for us, it's not in in terms of uh, like. Well, you mentioned like the vapors. Like, I don't want to get up there and just go play Shine and World I Know. Yeah, and December and, and leave. Like, yeah. I want to, you know, I, I don't. I want to play those songs. I, the, you know, people, I get asked, yeah. you know, do you ever get tired of playing the songs that you know from? And I, and I don't because each night's kind of a different night and there's somebody out there that's probably never heard it or sure. never heard it live even and that's that's a fun thought for me you know just enjoying it and being in the moment um but I, I don't i feel like and i just feel like we love still creating music and i feel like yeah. we have a lot left in the tank and yeah. i want to keep i want to play an hour and a half <clears throat> two yeah. hour show because um our catalog I mean, we we've you know we we take pride and we worked hard absolutely to to build that that repertoire up and I want to be able to utilize that and play it in whatever form or fashion mm-hmm. whether it's us like revisiting I don't know if you ever saw when we did um, the home recording we did the, with the Atlanta Youth Symphony no oh yeah you should check that out it's it, is it on YouTube like, yeah it's one okay. of the best it's one of the most uh, it's a it's a musical highlight for us. Atlanta Youth Symphony, so everybody's like, and oh. kids are like, like in high school, so it's basically 17 to 14 years yeah. old, amazing musicians, and um, we did it in Atlanta, but th- so those kind of things, I want I, I want to continue to do that type of, whatever yeah. we're inspired by and sparked, I'm not opposed to doing that and taking the money and doing those things, I'm, I'm not, I don't, and I don't judge anybody who does, that's no. not, but um, you know, I just, I, I honestly feel like we got more in the in the tank creatively to, to keep keep pushing. I can do that more stuff. I mean, your last couple of albums are as strong or stronger than your first couple of albums. So uh-huh. there's there's been no dip. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. There's no reason why that couldn't be like that. I want to know when you guys first started getting big and you mm-hmm. suddenly realized that you can make a living as a musician. 
mm-hmm. probably for the rest. And it turns out it's going to be for the rest of your life. You know, mm-hmm. you may not even know that at first. Mm-hmm. What is no that way. like? What is that like as if, you know, when you're a kid and you, it clicks in and you're just like, this is, I'm a rock star now. I can't believe it. <laughs> you know? You know what? I don't think, I don't think we've ever thought, I've never thought like that. I don't think that right. has either. No, because it's, it's, it, it's like becoming a successful musician, like being able to just live, it is so rare. I mean, it's yeah. incredibly rare. It's incredibly yeah. rare to, to get a record deal. Then to have success after that, and then to maintain success, yeah. I mean, you just get like chip, like the percentages are just the probability of that is like yes. crazy. You're literally winning a lottery multiple times. I mean, you can add in and, and, and take some credit over and you think you're good or there's quality. Yeah. I and mean, there is to that degree, but still, um, so I, I've always, we've always had a, a humble humility to it all of like mm-hmm. just a state of gratitude and, and with a, a sprinkle of paranoia that it's not mm-hmm. going to go away. Kind of thing. So it's like, let's, uh, that's healthy. You know, let's, let's, yeah, yeah. So let's, <laughs> let's make sure we're still, not taking this thing for granted, and we take a lot of pride in in, in yeah. ownership and what we do. So, I, so I, we've never had too too much of a gluttonous perspective on it, and we've never looked too much in in, in the rearview mirror of whatever success. It's kind of like, right. all right, what, what's what's next for us? But yeah, you know, it's funny like in um, doing this uh, documentary, the career spanning documentary that we're doing, been forced to reflect and oh, talk yeah. about it and think about it and and that's kind of like given given me some perspective of like oh yes yeah. so when is that going to come out uh it will be next year so okay. we recorded yeah yes yeah, so we have a, an album and okay. we're just going to just try to tie it into the 30 nice. year anniversary yeah. great and uh when does your tour kick off since i was looking at the wrong one oh okay yeah so we're starting. We actually next our, a week in a week and a half we go. We're playing um, Hootie Fest. Uh, Hootie, yeah, they they do um, an annual thing in in Cancun, uh, Mexico. In Cancun, <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of kicking us, kicking it off. So it's us, Hootie. Um, who else is playing? I want to say Jim Blossoms, um, mm-hmm. Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, that, that era of, of bands. Sure. It's going to be a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Yeah. And, then, and then this year it's going to be more of those types of festival-type shows okay. for us. Okay. Kind of scattered about them. Rather than like a, a tour that's crossing the right. Okay. Right. Okay. And we're going to play – we're doing a, a full Canadian tour, which we – Ooh, the nice. Okay. I don't think that's, we're playing Denver this year, though. Well, that's going to kind of piss me off. I wonder that, too. I uh, was hoping Cause, that that would happen, but I don't know. We played We played last year. and then, Yeah, I missed uh, it, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and then we'll probably get – I think we might miss it. We skipped Denver this year for just uh, whatever reasons, and then we'll definitely okay. be back next year. I might have to travel. Um, I might have to travel. Yeah. Okay, so i got two questions left. One, I know we're coming up on time. One, how did you get Elton to come in with you on Perfect Day? 
became he reached out well he lives in atlanta or he well oh that's true yeah he does yeah so he would split his time in atlanta between atlanta and uh his place in in london and or in england and i I don't know if he's in atlanta as often as he used to be but um so he when sean came out we had the early success he just literally got ed's number and just reached out He, he 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 loved it and wow yeah, and just he we just became buddies with him. So it would he would invite us to his house, and we would you know, and it was so much fun because I mean for many reasons. I mean he's Elton, obviously, but uh-huh. he, what what amazed me about him he was so up on like new music and, and yeah. still is like he just loves new stuff. He, he loves music. He loves yeah. the inspiration of, of new music. So we would go to his house, and he would give us new music and, you know, stuff that he loved and just turn us on to whatever. And it just kind of came up in conversation, a little hesitant, like, would you be willing to? And it's like, yeah, of course. It really was that simple. And <laughs> and uh, so he came up, we, we, we had this song that we felt like would be perfect. And it was yeah. fun to, for him to hop on and play piano. He comes in, he hadn't heard the song. He comes in, had a piano set up. We had the, the, the mic that uh-huh. he loves to sing into. It's a particular um, type of mic and uh, mm-hmm. microphone. And he comes in, he listens through to the song. He goes, I think I have an idea. Let me let me just run through it real quick. Ran through it once, picked it up, tracked it twice. That was done, literally. I mean, I mean, just got it. It was done. I mean, was, oh my God. <laughs> and then had the lyrics and sang his, Sing his part, sing. I think he did the second verse, yeah. and sing some backup vocals with Ed on, you know, on the the chorus and chorusing out. And then uh, we were like, "We're good." He's like, "I think we're good." Let me know. Like he was totally like, "We can do more or whatever." We're like, uh, "We're good." I mean, we're not pushing our luck here. This is amazing. Right. And we went. Yeah. Then we went and had lunch, and we just had a our own little, you know, I hate for the cheesy comment, but our own little yeah. perfect perfect day. <laughs> When you go to Elton John's house, what do you do? Is it? I imagine it full of flowers. I imagine there being maybe zebras running around in the backyard and like. Well, no, his, well, no, no. <laughs> you know? So his 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 place in Atlanta is in a high rise. And <clears throat> oh, yeah. So he over the years he he would when someone would put their unit up for sale, he would purchase it, and he literally. Well, ended up buying like a couple of floors okay. like, of, of the high rise. It was this crazy, beautiful, 
Uh, yeah, uh, and it was just full of yeah, flowers is correct, but full yeah. of like amazing art everywhere. Yeah. Okay. It, it was yeah, it's and I mean it's obviously well known that he's a big time collector of amazing art and yeah, and it just you just, you kind of just walk. I mean the whole the whole thing the whole experience is is an awe. But he's such a just a classy dude and totally. In that, he makes everyone so comfortable. Like he understands who he is and, and yeah. all, all of that stuff, but he doesn't, there's no arrogance or air about it. He, no. he, he, he makes you feel comfortable. Just like, so well, he, he loves talking about music too. He's one of my favorite people to hear interviewed because like oh, you were saying, he just name drops all these other bands or artists that he's into or that he's seen or that he's, hung out with, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that, I mean, when you're a music lover like us, that's what you want, you know? Yeah, and it's like, and that idea of someone at his level, at his, yeah. you know, degree, all of those things in his, where his career was, even at that time, I mean, that was, we first met him, gosh, 25 years ago, 20 years, some, oh some version of that. Oh I mean, to take on that role is almost like a, a mentorship and yeah. what kind of um, to give that kind of confidence and a little boost to to young artists. That's amazing. That's that's that's, that that's giving back. You know. Yeah, that and is I, amazing. I, that's one of the things that that I had. I, I took I mean, many things I've taken from Elton in terms of just uh, learning behavior yeah. and how you know he how he treats people and with respect and all this. But that. That one is like younger artists. Give them the confidence. Give them a little, yeah. you know, that's great. A little help and a little, little guidance. Some will listen, some won't, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Just that's great, there. man. Okay. Similarly, I know you got to go. Last question: When you, what was the first thing that happened to you that blew your mind? As you started ascending as a rock star, what's the one. thing where you're like? you know, David Bowie's in the front row or the groupies are getting better looking or the drugs are getting better or the money is getting good or the city is, we're sold out, whatever it might be. You can be as true or as, you know, nondescript as you want. What's that first thing that you're just like, I can't believe this is happening to me. Um, well, the very first thing before all of that happened in, Really, it was before we even got signed by Atlantic Records because we released that record independently. Uh-huh. Um, we were well, yeah. We were driving down to. <clears throat> we had a show. There was one station in Orlando, Florida, that was playing Shine. Oh, huh. and they were playing it midnight cycle. Like one of the DJs back then, DJs had their own. They weren't programmed by some central programmer. They, they could. They had commercial stations could grab something and play whatever they wanted to play. Then a guy named Steve Steve Robertson played it and played Shine. People started calling in. Back then, the people would call in and be like, what is that song? I want to hear it again. So we'd get a lot of requests. They had the contact information um, from the CD that we had sent. They called us and they're like, come play a show. So you you have a lot of fans down here. We're like, what? For real? Because we didn't know. Whatever. So <clears throat> we're driving down there, and they're doing like um, uh, top ten at two or five, whatever, in the afternoon. Uh-huh. We're on uh-huh. our way from Atlanta to Orlando, 
And um, on the way down, we're listening to, as we get there, they're doing the countdown, and they go 10, 9, 8, 7, 7, whatever, down to the 1, or down to the 2. And we're literally, we're just like, just so happy that like somebody actually wants that gives a shit like that because we're playing for our girlfriends and friends right. in Atlanta and literally we say it in the in the van as we're driving down like how fucking cool would it be like if, if we were on this list one day for real it was just kind of like totally like naive and humble uh-huh. and the next one that came up was and number at number one collective soul shine and that was the first, literally the first time i've ever heard the song on the radio i'm like no yeah, yeah. we literally we were like screaming and yelling in the van and like pulled it over on the side of the highway going down uh-huh. 75 to, to orlando and we were just like being silly as fuck like what the hell just happened like that none of us we did not expect that in a million fucking years oh and that and that was it so we're like oh god so that was like, and then we go down. Good for you, like, man. We played a show, and that was, and the Atlantic Records flew down, and they basically we played that show, and they signed us that night, and that was after, you know, yeah, year, years of being turned down by labels, but it was like that was the the long term overnight success thing. That That's great. <laughs> Good for you. I love that. Yeah. I so love that, that was that that was a mind blowing moment. I bet it was. Well, look, you've been gracious with your time. Thank you, Dean. I think you guys are great. And I've always wanted to chat with you, and I'm so grateful that you gave me your time. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Sean. Take care, my friend. There you have it, Dean Roland. I don't know about you, but that that conversation kind of caused me to kind of want to celebrate Collective Soul again. I went deep on their catalog uh, for the first time in a while because it was just so good to hear those hits again. Reminds me of... (laughs) of my 20s and college and stuff like that, you know? Anyway, all right. Now, we're going to talk to Brock Walsh. Brock Walsh is a noted songwriter. He's been at it for like 40 years. The name might sound familiar because it came up in the Robbie Neville interview that we did a few weeks ago. And his probably his biggest hit is this one right here, Automatic, which was a big hit for the Pointer Sisters back in like 1983, I think. I love this song. And I've, Brock is one of those names that you see in the liner notes or on like a lot of movie soundtracks or just in the credits. It's just one of those names. And I always thought, I want to know more about Brock Walsh. Well, this is one of the most enjoyable, fun, pop culture packed conversations I've ever had on this podcast. And the thing that I like most about this conversation is that I feel like you can hear two people becoming friends over the course of the conversation. I start out asking him about kind of an obscure song of his that I discovered from the early 80s, because he was a solo artist briefly in the early 80s. And we start talking about that, but then, so he wrote, he did music for Cop Rock. You remember Cop Rock? He was the voice of Mac Tonight in that McDonald's, uh, commercial advertisements in the what was that 80s he he worked for Quincy Jones he he worked for he made he did songs for movie soundtracks like with Sidney Poitier and uh, Secret Admirer and uh, he wrote for Bruce Willis and Jean, James Ingram and Earth Wind and Fire there is so much awesome obscure but super fun pop culture trivia in here and Brock is the best I love this and so anyway I don't know if you know who Brock is or not 
but you are going to love this conversation. It's one of my favorite ones we've ever had. I just fell in love with this guy, and I really feel like I have a friend, you know? He was that great. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it, too. He called me from his home in Southern California. Okay, so here's the deal. I don't remember exactly how I discovered the song, but your name has been one of those names that you see sometimes, and every time I light up because I think, I love, what every time I see that name, I like what I hear. Oh, and Paper Doll, somewhere along the way, probably 10, 15 years ago, I discovered Paper Doll. And uh, I love that song. Dateline Tokyo, the solo album, as far as I know, was only available in Japan. I I don't know where you... Only half the songs are even available on YouTube to check out. I think that was a theme song maybe to a TV movie or a something. Tell me about the history of Paper Doll. Okay. So, the, the two are kind of related, Dateline Tokyo and, and Paper Doll. You know, I, I was going to be a rock star. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was... I I was going to be a rock star. I sat at my on my friend's bed just before graduation from high school and listened to Jackson Brown's first album. People always say saturated be saturate before using, but that's not actually the name of the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, name of the album is Jackson Brown. Mm-hmm. Um and I heard that and something changed. Something I learned something about how meaningful music could be changing actually changing people's insides you know though adam was a friend of mine i did not know him well he was alone into his distance he was deep into his well i got that far and i just went oh my god i you know i mean i had been in music already but i thought i i really want to i want to do what jackson does uh-huh. so over the ensuing whatever that was 1971 not until i graduated from not until 1980 from 1971 to 1980 i entertained this fantasy that i was going to be a rock star Mm -hmm. and i wrote songs also an athlete too sorry to interrupt yeah that's a that's sort of another story but um so I wrote songs and I played in bands and I did my own thing and I put my own name on the marquee. And, you know, I came from a little town, Poughkeepsie, New York, with a great club called 
uh, Frivolous Al's Last Chance Saloon. You've probably heard of it if you've talked to anybody in Orleans or... Mm -hmm. John Hall's been on here. Yes. Okay. Well, John and I are friends, and John played in that club yep. hundreds of times, as did I. Anyway, so I was going to be a pop star, and I have a talent of being uh, very versatile, both vocally and in my interests. I love lots of different kinds of music. I think it's having grown up and, you know, coming having come of age musically well for me it was the beatles but that's that, that's a separate story with the beatles and stevie and aretha and motown and you know led zeppelin and cream i mean there were hendrix my my, my mind like a lot of my contemporaries was utterly riddled with 10 different kinds of great music, you know? Mm -hmm. So, and I loved it all. So I would, you know, and, and imitate it all mm -hmm. and occasionally write a song that sounded one like this or one like this, one like this. Well, that very talent does not serve you as a recording artist. <laughs> it doesn't because what people want to hear well, if I start singing like that, you know I'm Bruce Springsteen. Every song has got that style. It's just, you know it's Springsteen. You know? You know it. He doesn't yeah. change. He's not so versatile that he sounds like Stevie Wonder in the next right. song. Right. I did. Yeah. So in 1980, fast forward to 1980, because we're getting close to Paper Doll. Uh-huh. I had kind of uh, spent my bullets becoming a pop star um nobody was you know i did gigs at, i had moved to la after college facing mm -hmm. my then college girlfriend to her home in beverly hills she, now my wife of will be 44 years in december good for you thank you i decided in 1980 to follow the lead of a couple of other friends of mine who became staff songwriters instead of pop stars, mm -hmm. which is a life with greater longevity, mm -hmm. both biologically and professionally, <laughs> um, and more suited to my particular skill set. So I went to Rick Shoemaker and Leeds Levy at uh, MCA Universal. It was just MCA Music at that point. Uh, and fell into a complete fun house. Mm -hmm. The Demo Dungeon at MCA Music. Robbie Neville, yeah. Mark Goldenberg, Glenn Ballard, mm -hmm. Cliff Magnus, uh, Mark Muller. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a couple of these people on the show. Okay. Yeah. Fascinated by them. I so fell in love with my life in music as of, uh, I think it was in September of 1980, I signed with MCA Music. And you didn't mind being going from the drive of wanting to be a rock star to being the behind the scenes guy? No, because for me, as soon as we both have guitars in our hand and we're strumming and trying to write a song. Uh huh. I'm on stage at Madison Square Garden. In my really? mind, yeah. it's like the, the switch has been 
throne. Uh-huh. I'm excited. I'm in the creative. I just, you know, I, I was a young guy, you know, 1980. Yeah. I was, I was pretty young and still discovering what it was that was going to turn me on. You know, being a pop star would have been great. Didn't happen. Uh-huh. Fine. So anyway, uh, coincidentally, upon signing, I think it was late summer, 1980, because my wife had applied to, and we heard after I had signed my deal with MCA, she had been accepted to a program. She's a journalist and a writer, and she was accepted to a program at Yale Law School called Master's Studies in Law, MSL. And uh, it included a stipe, it included her salary from the Los Angeles Times, where she was a staff writer, mm-hmm. and a stipend to live in New Haven for a year. Mm-hmm. Well, I walked into Rick Shoemaker's office and said, <clears throat> You just signed and everything, but my wife just got this. You know, I explained the situation. Yeah. I'm going to move to New Haven for a year with her, but but, but, hold on, hold on. It's going to be fine. I will two days a week minimum get on the train and go to New York and work out of the New York office for the, for the first year. They were worried. They Mm -hmm. were dumbfounded. They were skeptical, Mm -hmm. but it worked. You know, wow. it absolutely worked. And I met some New York writers and uh, Martin Briley. Oh, love Martin. Uh, Martin's been on here. Has and he? Yes. And when I saw Getting Ready to Talk to You that you two wrote, wrote Getting, Getting Over Losing You for Barry Manilow. Just hope not this soon. All I wanted was to speak your name and maybe not start breaking down again. I hoped you'd see me with somebody new and think that I was fine. But now it ain't no use, there's nothing left to Yeah. I emailed him and said, I'm talking to Brock. What should I say? And he just said how much fun he had and told me to tell you hello. Yeah. Martin's I, a good I, man. I He's just great. Yep. Uh, anyway. Okay. Now I'm getting to paper doll. Sorry. Everything. Uh-huh. That's okay. Uh, this is all. Well, and I think that Barry Manilow song from what I could tell was one of your first 
yeah. big ones, it right? My, well, it wasn't even that big, but it was big. A big name artist. People would trying know. to make it real compared to what? <laughs> <laughs> it was big compared to everything that had. That's one of my favorite sure. songs ever. I can't. You just. I can't believe oh, you just God. said that. Les McCann. Yeah. Um. Eddie Harris. You're too young to know all this shit. Okay, so um, <laughs> so rewind uh-huh. to Harvard, where I met Joy, who I would later marry, but I met a number of other remarkably talented and bright and kind people. Some real assholes, too. Sure. Um, but back to the first category, one of whom, uh, my friend Ed Zwick, who is a film director. Yeah. Glory, 30-something. Yep. Did 30-something, you know, Blood Diamond, Last Summer, million things, you know, big big actors and stuff. Was hired to do, I guess, write and direct Paper Doll? Mm. Um, I think so. Well, he was the director at the the very least. And he and his partner, Marshall Herskovitz, tend to write everything, or at least did early on in their career, or for the bulk of their career. Anyway, I had just moved to New Haven, <laughs> and Ed, you know, I am not, I don't have a lot of shame, you know, had a happy childhood, did a lot of uh-huh. fucked up things, but apologized <laughs> and got through them. I don't live with a lot of shame, so uh-huh. I I can say fairly effortlessly to my friends, hey, Ed, that just seems to be a story about that needs a pop song, needs an opening title. Mm-hmm. Let me write it. I'll, and I'm pretty sure I did so on spec. You know? Okay. So I probably I don't really remember, but I probably cut the demo in New York. I wrote it and re- I read the script, wrote the song, and sent it to him. And he went, great. Yeah, we're going to use this song. Yeah. And you're going to have to come to LA <laughs> to uh, supervise. It's, I guess, my vocal is the one that they used in the movie, right? Okay. I've never seen the movie. I just has heard the song and know that it's yeah, tied to a movie. Sure it is. So at the first time, I took the, I took the train in New York, New York and the, Flew to L.A. Ed picked me up in a little sports car <laughs> at LAX. Boy, did I feel like, you know, uh-huh. get away from me. I'm flying <laughs> to L.A. and the film director's picking me up, you know. Welcome to the rest of your life. Right, right. <laughs> Not exactly. Um, anyway, uh, went to some fancy studio, probably Village or something like that and recorded the vocal and did the mix and went to the set and met Daryl Hannah. One of, by the way, one of Ed Zwick's greatest talents, maybe his greatest talent is discovering talent. That was uh, Daryl Hannah's first movie or first starring role, I think. And then later, uh, the woman from Homeland, what's her name? uh, Claire Danes. Claire Danes was in, uh whatever that show was so you know um i was the beneficiary of my friend's 
generosity and Got offering it. me an opportunity and i stupidly didn't blow it you know i mean i don't know how great that song is but i yeah. love that song and um i have a an, a slight obsession my listeners will tell you with uh movie soundtrack songs of which you have many and i want to get into andrew gold linda ronstadt we'll talk about all those things i promise but i have to know what if my <laughs> one of my favorite guilty pleasure movies ever is fast forward from <laughs> directed by the great Sydney Poitier about a dance troupe that moves to New York to try and make it big. Uh, it's kind of hard to find. I've only ever been, I've seen it two or three times when it shows up on cable or whatever. There are two Awful. great, I mean, the whole soundtrack is great. There's two. No, I, I love this movie. So wrong. But that's okay. Go on. <laughs> there are a couple of great songs on this soundtrack. What is Break It Out? survive and you wrote both those songs gee the great originality i showed with those title choices you know The the groundbreaking music. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. I love that movie. <laughs> this Did you is get really to meet fun. Cindy? I get to trash myself and, okay. and you get to save my reputation. <laughs> good luck. So tell me about it. What did you uh, get to meet Sydney Poitier? Did you get to did he pick you up in a sports car? Just no, like that did? did not. No. Uh what year was fast forward? We I think it was 85. I've got it right here. Um, yeah. Okay. I can tell you how this went down. 
Um, oh, I, I love this movie so much. I can't believe we're talking about it. Oh, God, you have such horrible taste. Um, <laughs> so, in 1984, we wrote Automatic, Mark. Uh-huh, yeah. Yep, we're going to get to that, too. Okay. Uh, and when Quincy Jones heard Automatic, he was it coincided with his wanting to expand uh, Quincy Jones' music to include a production arm. and. MCA Music was the hottest publishing company. You know, Glenn Ballard mm-hmm. was doing amazing things. Glenn and I were doing amazing things together. I've he, got one on my he, list here. He's he, going to come up here in a minute. Okay. And I think Glenn had preceded me to uh, Quincy Jones Music, but I went and met Quincy, and, you know, I have such respect for Quincy Jones. Big time. And he offered me a job. Uh, which how do you how do you possibly say no to uh, a job with Quincy Jones? And Sydney is a friend of Quincy's for you know fifty years, and I met Sydney, and I think that probably came through Quincy Jones music. Mark Bahia was a James O. Oh, Ollie yeah, e. Brown. Yeah. You Mark. wrote breaking out with Ollie E. Brown. I have been trying to find Ollie E. Brown for years. No, I can't be of any help, but Mark Via, okay, you will be fascinated to know, went on to found and run Lanny Music, L-A-N-Y Music, which was the which completely changed my life. Really? The commercial production house that created the McDonald's spot when the clock strikes. Really? And you and were Mac tonight. Yeah. I'm <laughs> hid for golden light. So, yeah, Mark is friends with Tom Baylor, who's been friends with Quincy Jones. And, yeah, we all sort of fell into uh, that project. But, I mean, I can't tell you too much about it, except that it's a, it's one of those things where you better be ready when your opportunities come. Totally. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you get to work for Quincy Jones. You better, you know, get a good yeah. night's sleep and show up and be ready to work hard. Um, for whatever skill, whatever talent I have, I, I mean, I take my. I'm grateful for the, all the opportunities <laughs> I ever had, and <laughs> I didn't burn any bridges. I, you know, good. I knew working for Quincy was to was it came with it what came with working with quincy was a responsibility to uphold a certain quality definitely definitely. well said and uh otherwise and then the rest is a blur you know i mean write these write some songs hear from sydney what he wants i'm sure imitate something that was popular at the time i mean when you're a staff writer you have your ear to the ground constantly you know you want to know what's hip you want to know what's popular and then you want to get in the studio with oh you know and the other person who was huge at mca was tommy farragher who's still totally happening working with everybody you know much more so than myself, um, learn from 
the musicians who accompanied, who helped in the creation of our demos, I mean, we we unpacked a Lynn drum machine, mm. you know, and set it up in the studio at MCA Music and started pushing buttons on it. Mm-hmm. Read the manual? No, 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 that comes later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's start hitting the buttons and, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm getting off topic. No, this is fascinating. So did you meet Sydney? Do you yes. have? Yes. Okay. Okay. Sydney, Was he as elegant as we imagine? Sydney Portier is the most brilliant, gorgeous, yeah. well-spoken, kind. I mean, they could have just replicated if they just replicated mm-hmm. male and female mm-hmm. Sydney Portiers, the human race would have been a lot better off. Yeah. He was an amazing guy. What he was doing directing of you know that movie mm-hmm. whatever did he have the cultural mm-hmm. background in order to know i don't know i haven't seen that movie in 40 years it's probably pretty awesome <laughs> pretty awesome <laughs> we'll go with we'll go with you you know you're you're a safer political bet that's basically all I can read. Oh, and the other thing I remember is it still shows up on my ASCAP statement. Good. There you go. Nice. Yeah. I love that. Um, lots of other movie soundtracks to get to, but we've talked about Glenn Ballard a couple of times, and you guys wrote uh, Try Your Love Again for James Ingram. Look at you. I can't believe my eyes. Still walking around and feeling sorry for yourself did you think when it broke your heart that it never happened to nobody else yes i know he hurt you so you feel like your world has ended that your heart cannot be mended so you hide away inside your lonely It's, it's the, the one where he looks like with the hat, with the steps yes. in and the, yes. and the and he, James has a co-write on the breaking out song we just talked about. So a little bit of history. Whenever someone, I'm such a music nerd, as you can tell. And whenever people ask me, what was the first album you bought with your own money? I don't really know how to answer because the first thing I remember doing is sending away for those 13 records for a penny from Columbia house or whatever. Ooh, yeah. Your and, parents. Remember yes, my the parents paid months for of yes. deliveries they got afterwards. Exactly. And within that first bundle of records was David Bowie's Let's Dance, Police Synchronicity, um, and It's Your Night by James Ingram was in that first packet of albums that I got. Wow. I love that album. It's got Yamo B there on it. What do you remember about working with James? He was one of my premiest guests and then he because he just disappeared then he passed away yeah touched by divinity in terms yeah. of the sound of his voice and well said and, yes i mean he was another quincy guy now i'm figuring yeah, this okay. out yes absolutely yes. um 
he was featured on all of Quincy's, uh, you know, the dude and the dude. All, all yep. his, I mean, it's just so interesting. No, nobody picked up what Quincy did, which is be a great producer and just hire the great singers. And hey, you, I like these songwriters. You come in, write something for James. You know, it's like mm-hmm. there were, it's just such a now it's like, you know, so well, it's me working in my, you know, here. Yeah. When I hear my record, you know, I played <laughs> I played the hi-hat on it, you know, I whatever. Uh, okay, so James Ingram, um, you go to work for Quincy, you're gonna meet the elite. Mm-hmm. Um Patty and Patty Austin and uh and Greg filling gains. Oh Ooh, yeah. There you oh. go. Talk about touched by divinity. I mean, that guy, his, yeah. his touch was, um, I met James, heard him sing, you know, we got the word that Quincy was looking for songs for James album. And we went to work in the demo dungeon and MCA music and, uh, you know, Glenn and I wrote some stuff. Everybody wrote for, yeah. for the record. I remember G- G- Glenn playing. Oh, it's so good. I love that song. Yes. You know, what's to say? Okay. Um, okay. Okay. That you, um, okay. I got one more that I think is coming from the Quincy stable. That's Lewis Johnson. Uh, the brothers Johnson are. In my top three favorite R&B acts of all time, Earth, Wind & Fire, who you've also worked with, Heat Wave, and the Brothers Johnson, and probably the Gap Band are like the top of the peak for me. Great taste. Thank you. And Lewis, unfortunately, is no longer with us, but he did put out a solo album, and you wrote, To Get Love, You Make Love. this happen well i called the catholic church and asked them what would be most offensive for you to hear in a song and they said oh to get love you make love I said, okay great got the got title. it no um <laughs> i have absolutely zero recollection of oh the song, shoot the title anything about it zero. really 
Really? Blank. Complete blank. Oh, man. You you have an MP3 of it? Well, it's on YouTube. I pulled it up on YouTube. I don't think you could hear it if I played it. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, if if you want to, I'll get YouTube up and be able to listen to it. But maybe <laughs> okay. that's just going to drag this out. It's too. totally fine. It's totally okay, fine. Okay. We're yeah. going to insert a little snippet of it right here, no matter what. But okay, okay so there's no real story there. That's no. too bad. Okay, let's talk then. I've got a whole, I've got more here. Okay, I got to ask one more. Did you have something to do with Cop Rock? Bro. Bro! <laughs> Come on. Cop rock was my cop rock was my thing. (laughs) So, how did I know Stephen Pochko? Mike Post. Mike Post. Yeah. Okay. So Mike Post knew all about MCA music. You know, Uh we had such a reputation. You know, the the hits that were coming out of that room and the wildness and the speed with which we could create stuff was pretty well known by this point. Mike Post said, okay, speed and quality, the two attributes we're looking for because you get your assignment on Tuesday, you record on Thursday, and you are on the set on Friday. Oh, my gosh. Who who wants in? (laughs) I go, I am so on that. Put, (laughs) Put me in, coach. Um, he goes, okay, Walls and a couple other guys. Uh, did Robbie do it? I don't know. I don't think so. I just saw this Googling your name somewhere. Yeah. Oh, my God. I was in it for the whole season, you know, uh-huh. for whatever it was, 12 weeks. 12 uh-huh. Tuesdays or 12 Mondays was the staff meeting. You wrote on Tuesday. <laughs> you recorded on Wednesday. <laughs> you mixed on Thursday. In all the time you're sending, you know, messengers are taking tapes back and forth to produce. Oh my gosh. And then you're on the set on Friday and doing playback. You know, did you, re- did you write that? Let's be careful out there. That's the no. one that, no, you didn't write no. that one. Okay. I wrote the single greatest moment in cop rock. This is my own opinion now. Kind of gets a girl thinking. Like I don't know what to do with myself. One cop's female partner has got the hots for him, uh-huh. and he, she's constantly coming on to him, and he's not interested. She's kind of a big girl, uh-huh. um, and he's not into her, but 
she corners him and sings, I want to go bump-de-bump-de. <laughs> I want to go woozy-woo. I want to go bump-de-bump-de. Bump-de-bump-de with you. And he's like, still, you know, oh. out of his mind. Um, and the other song you should check out, and, okay. and this one I know is on YouTube, and it's very funny, uh, was when a, a couple wanted to adopt a kid and but couldn't for some reason. Uh -huh. Went to some shark who for extra money would get you a kid. And I wrote a song called Baby Merchant. Merchant? Merchant. The baby merchant. Tots are us. Oh, God. <laughs> you know, it was just a chance to, you know, sure. I'm not careful. I'm, you know, that's what it would be, right? Yeah. It's a store yeah. that sells human beings. Tots are us, you know. Um, so it was really, really fun from a standpoint of, I mean, if you are slightly manic. Uh-huh. And I have a and particularly when I was younger, kind of a hypomanic personality. Like let's okay. go let's create. Yeah. You know, oh, it's three in the morning and we've got a mix at nine. Okay, we'll go to sleep now. Yeah. It was the perfect job, you know. It was ridiculous. Uh -huh. it was embarrassing a bunch <laughs> of times. It was just downright embarrassing. Uh but it was also the most fun, you know, you could yeah. get and, and do that. Incredible. That's crazy. My family, I graduated from high school in 1991. And a couple of weeks later, my family moved to England and we were living in Cambridge. <clears throat> and at, at the time, probably still now, there was only four TV channels. And there, you're so desperate for anything American, you know, that, uh, the BBC, one of the channels, would sometimes, not even on like a regular basis, but sometimes play an episode of Cop Rock. And I would watch because I just wanted something American, you know? And uh, it was so fun. I mean, it was absolute silliness, but it was yeah. so fun, you know? In that situation, if I had been home and it was on on a Friday night and yeah. I'm in high school, there's no way I'm stopping what I'm doing to watch Cop Rock. Yeah. But that when I'm in England and I can't think of anything else... Subsequent to it, called Hall High, H U L L High, is in high school. No, and it was Kenny Ortega. Really, I would then, and I worked with Kenny on Hall High, and then we worked on Hocus Pocus together. 
Um, oh, that's but, that connection. Yeah, you might want just make a note, or I'll record it here, and you can uh-huh. check it if you want. There's a song called Team Sandwich. On Hull High, that's really one of the funnier, weirder things that's ever been on television. Okay. Anyway, (laughs) we'll insert it right here if we can find it. That's great. Um, Okay, let's see. Well, we're having too much fun. I got one more weird one for you. Coming right up by Bruce Willis. Stay weird. Well, stay weird. Coming right up, track one off Return of Bruno, the debut album by Bruce Willis, which I bought on cassette and uh, owned. And um, it's silly now, but at the time it felt legit. And that's a pretty good song. When you get called, are they like, hey, Brock, could you write anything for Bruce Willis? And you're like, the guy from Moonlighting, come on. Great, great story that goes with this song. Bring it. Bring it. My eldest son who just turned 39 was two and he had pneumonia and he was in bed at home, this little creature, you know, toe headed, big blonde curls, rambunctious, crazy, energetic, young little boy (laughs) with pneumonia stayed in bed for like three days. The doctor made a house call. And gave him a shot of penicillin right there in the bed. Mm. Within hours, 
this kid who hadn't had anything except water for three days and was utterly weak, could barely sit up, you know, and that's terrifying to your mm -hmm. first child, of course. Any, any child. And I walked in to check on him and I said, you know, honey, can I get you anything? You know, you haven't had anything to eat. He goes, yeah, could you? And I went, great, you're hungry. He goes, yeah, I am. I said, what can I get you? And he, he goes, pasta. I go, okay, great. I'll get you. No, and uh, peanut butter and jelly <laughs> and chicken and <laughs> cereal and toast and this and this. And then I'm listening. I'm so, tears are running sure. down my face. Sure. And he, I wait for him to stop. And he finally stops. And I say to him, coming right Come up. Right up. Yeah. So I thought, you know, I went and I uh -huh. made a bunch, you know, whatever. And we served him. Of course. Better. He just needed penicillin. And when I woke up the next day, I went, oh, what if, what if the thing that a girl wants from you is the exact thing you want to give to her, which Ooh, is yeah. the definition of a, yes. a symbiotic relationship, you know, yes. the thing you want from me is what I am desperate to give to you. Yeah. That gave birth to that song. Now, was it floating around out there or did you write it specifically for Bruce or did the producers say, you got anything for Bruce? How what? How does that I, even I happen? I have a friend with whom I went to college named Robert Kraft, who, uh, Robbie Kraft. Okay. He went on to run music for Fox. Okay. Uh, for many years, but he's a very talented keyboardist, a smart guy, talented guy. He's an old friend of Bruce's. Oh. From the time they he was a bartender in New York. Yep. And Robbie Kraft was, I think tennis player or something mm. i don't know but they were buddies they were pals in new york and so when robbie craft i get he had some role in bruce's record because of their mm -hmm. relationship and i i suspect bruce's faith in robbie's musicality yeah. and, and otherwise put him in charge and Robbie reached out to me to say, do you have any songs that you think you uh, might like? And I suggested that. There you go. Yeah. Um, okay. I got to ask, we try to cover this business side of things sensitively on here. Um, I'm assuming you mentioned your ASCAP, you know, statement that you get. What's the biggest earner on there? You've done so many things. Is it automatic yeah. or is it, is it okay? It's automatic. What's second then? I'm curious. Well, honestly, this, probably the biggest earner I've ever had is not one song, but one of 500 promos. There was a time. I've had so many different weird niche yeah. eras in my songwriter career. There was a 10-year period, I think, between... 83 and 93, where every year, first for Fox, then for ABC, and then for CBS television, wrote their annual theme. You know, uh -huh. it's all here on CBS. I remember this. Yeah. yeah right. They they don't do it anymore, but they mm -hmm. that was the last gravy train for sure. songs, right? Mm -hmm. You get paid six figures to write a uh, theme, you know. And for that, they own the publishing. 
It's like, yeah, you got it, bro. Right. But what I got was the job of producing a full version, two minutes and 30 seconds. Oh, there's a great one that you got to hear. It's on my SoundCloud. Um, oh, okay. ABC featuring <clears throat> Aretha Franklin and Leon Russell. What? Oh my God! Whoa. It'll tear your head off. It's so good. Okay. Oh, okay. We belong together. Um. Okay. Stay on point here, Brock. You're getting. <laughs> You're talking about the the. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The ASCAP. different TV stations. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. ASCAP. So that first year, this was the first one. It was for. Um, it was. I guess it was ABC came first. There's a guy named Jeff Calnan. Um, a wonderful friend and. Um, a guy I'm eternally grateful to for, for the opportunities that he provided me wrote the theme and then cut the 60, 30, mm. 2015, five, four and three second versions of those things. And then strip the vocals, but leave the backgrounds and record it for this ABC affiliate and this in Salt Lake. Oh, no way. New York and Houston. And Houston yeah. And Houston. It's like, cha-ching, mother. Wow. You know? So yeah. my music was, and it was all, you know, it's covered. It's statutory yeah. ASCAP tracks of that sure. stuff. They own the pub, but I own the writers. And so, and I still see, and this is, what, 19... 82 is 40 years ago, 42 years yeah. ago, years ago. I'm still seeing, and I don't know which promo it is. Really? Stop paying. I stopped paying attention. Sure. 10 years of a hundred spots a year. Oh my That's a thousand gosh. promos. You know, oh my so gosh. So there are a thousand promos earning a penny. But you add them all up, and sure. over the years, it's probably been the largest. Um, that is incredible mailbox money yeah. right there. But listen to We Belong Together. Okay. Oh my God. It's so beautiful. I will. You, won't, you don't hear me saying that about my own No, stuff. I get it. I get it. Um, 
Well, it's interesting you say that. I've had a few people on here who have been in the advertising industry too. Um, uh, people who sang jingles, like for instance, I had this guy Pepe Castro on here who he was in. Familiar. He was in the um, oh his big band, the one he was most famous for when he was a teenager. Anyway, he uh, did some other things. He was in a band called Balance with Bob Kulick, I think it was, for a while. Anyway, he was one of the backup singers on that Clydesdale Christmas commercial and uh, that played every year. You know, the Budweiser with the Clydesdales chopping oh through the God. snow? Uh, yes. And there were just a few people in the background going, ooh. And he's one of those people. And he made bank. Because that ad played every November, December for like a decade. And just being involved in that, he made tons of money off that. Yeah. Well, when you see the Verizon ads with yes. you know, these the Cicely, whatever her name yeah, is. Yeah, Cicely Strong. Why would a person do that? You know, because they are because you know, yes. Because the the rates are just ridiculous. Yes, that's what I hear. That is exactly what I hear. This is going to kill me. What was Pepe Castro's first band called? Um, why can I not remember? No. No. Come on. Come on. Come on. Uh, Blues Magoos. That's it. <laughs> Thank God. I, I know. I will well, be able like, to sleep tonight. I know. It, would, it, it helps me. Okay. So let's talk for a minute about Andrew Gold, who... Like Lewis Johnson would be at or near the top of my wish list of people I could interview if they were still around. I find him so interesting because he was really good there for a while and then completely disappeared. Mm -hmm. And I've always wondered why I talk about him with anyone who will come on here and talk to him about me. So Stephen Bishop and I talked about him. Wadi Wachtel told me something really interesting. That once Andrews, and I don't know if you guys were friends, I hope this is okay. Once Andrews started making all of that Golden Girls money, he got really out of shape. He got really indulgent. He got really fat. He stopped taking care of himself. He took too many drugs. And it eventually just killed him. Because the financial success of having that song as the theme did him in. And stifled his creativity. He didn't feel like he needed to make any more albums or do anything else really after that. If that's not true, there's something equally true. He got very unhealthy. Okay. He had kidney cancer. He survived that. He got high a lot. Yeah. Um, I got, well, I mean, we could talk for 10 hours about Andrew Gold. I mean, really? he's the best man of my wedding. I was the best man at his wedding. He changed my life completely. Mm-hmm. I'll give you the two-minute story. Because it, I you cannot tell my I cannot tell my story without telling this story. This okay. this is life changing. I'm a senior at Harvard College. My roommates urge me to send a demo of my songs. I have just years previously heard Joni Mitchell and Jackson Brown. Where else are you going to send it? Asylum Records. Off it goes. We record it uh, with Joe Ciccarelli over in Boston and at the good studio there absolute crap material crap recording one decent song that i had forever sent it off to electrosound nothing three months later 
last day of senior year. I mean, literally, I'm done with college. I've finished my my last exam. I come home to my apartment. I'm not living on campus at the time. I'm living with my now wife, Joy, and my friend, Milton Jay. Um, ex- extremely great bass player and neuropsychologist mm. in Waltham, Massachusetts. And there is stuck in my mailbox a note. And it says, hi, Brock. I'm here in Boston, and I'm hoping you have time for me. Signed, Charlie Plotkin, head of A&R, Asylum Records. Mm -hmm. Oh, what was he doing in Boston, you might wonder? He was seeing another young artist from Boston, you might remember, named Bruce Springsteen. Oh, my gosh. Oh. I call the number. He's over to my apartment. I'm playing my songs. Um, he basically trashes my material, but he's he's the most he's, he remains my dearest friend to today. I mean, I'm going to see him uh, on Sunday. Um, my wife remembers coming back into the apartment and hearing Charlie go, "No, no, no, Brock, it's." You're no good. You're no good. You're no good. <laughs> Baby, you're no good. Okay. Here's the other. Okay. Here's the other half of the story. I would later learn that my tape had sat unheard in Electrosylum because Charlie's assistant, who is his sister, Laura, another remains my loved friend for for over 40 years, I adore her, had asked him to listen to it, and he's so busy, and he's Mm -hmm. getting high a lot back then. Anyway, um, he never heard it. Charlie's wife, then wife, was a student of, you're not going to believe this, my late father-in-law, Joy's father, is a, a shrink in Beverly Hills. What? He... Charlie's wife was a student to become a shrink, and she studied with Mike Horowitz, okay? So Mike had called Andrea, Charlie's ex-wife, and said, come, you know, congratulations, you're all done with your program, you did great, come do the cocktail party on Saturday. And she said, oh, Dr. Horowitz, thank you so much, but we're going sailing. Until Friday of that week, when a typhoon, <laughs> a typhoon was predicted to hit LA on Saturday and they canceled the sailing trip. By the way, I've lived here for 44 years. Uh-huh. I've never been in a fucking typhoon ever. <laughs> um, Dr. Horowitz, we can come to the cocktail party. Here comes Charlie. Here comes Mike. I've yeah. met neither of them at this point, uh-huh. but I am. Dr. Horowitz's daughter's boyfriend at Harvard. Yeah, yeah. Charlie, what do you do? Mike says, oh, I'm in the record business. He goes, that's so interesting. My daughter's boyfriend is a songwriter. And Charlie goes, oh, you know, he's thinking, uh-huh. not another one of these. Yes, songs. exactly. <laughs> Everybody's got a songwriter. <laughs> okay, yeah, blah, blah, blah. What's his name? Brock Walsh. Charlie goes, thinks to himself, fuck, that sounds familiar. Uh-huh. Why do I know that name? He goes to the office on Monday morning. He says to Laura, his assistant, how do I know the name Brock Walsh? She goes, that 
that's the kid I've been trying to get you to listen to. He listens to it, gets in the car, and goes to Boston. No way. I'm no way. You, if that ain't God at work. No kidding. That ain't moving the, yes. the tumblers in just the right yes. direction. The typhoon? Yeah, a typhoon out of nowhere in, in L.A. Okay, so Charlie said, Charlie said, when you, you know, he cut back to my apartment, you know, he's totally sweet and he's right. My songs are shit. <laughs> um, come and look me up in LA. You've got a lot of talent, but you know, you, uh -huh. you, you got to come and grow the fuck up, you know? Right, right. So I went and Charlie was, had just finished Andrew's first album, produced Andrew's first album. I went to a sound factory on Melrose where they were sequencing and it's going to be an endless flight. Oh, that's my favorite Andrew Gold song. Yeah. And all those other great songs. Andrew was putting together his band and the same band would back Linda up on her upcoming tour. This yeah. was in, you know, August. Oh, the other great part of the story, we were living in Joy's parents' house and after I met Andrew, he said, Charlie talked to Andrew and said, you ought to, you know, you're putting a band together. This kid is like, he's good. He can sing, he can play, looks, you know, whatever. Uh, so I went and I got Andrew's album. Charlie's office gave me Andrew's album and Linda's Heart Like a Wheel. Mm. And I would shed it on those records. Of course. Joy's parents' piano. You know, oh my gosh. Ba -dum, ba -dum. you're oh no good, you're no gosh. good, you're no good. Baby, Baby you're no good. Wow. And I went to Andrew's house. This is a great story. This only takes a minute. I learned all this, you know, guitar, bass, banjo, mandolin, you know, you're, you got to, you basically, when you play in Andrew's band, you pick up whatever he puts down because he's going to play the instrument that is the star of the arrangement. <laughs> And you're going to sit there and strum and sing and sing background. So we do, where I go, baby, here in my... Good, he's smiling at me. Good. Yes, it doesn't matter anymore. Hey, good, man. You did your homework. Yeah, okay. Couple minutes past, you know, we do heat wagon. Really good, man. Hey, by the way, he says, you're going to love it on the tour bus. We listen to like Richard Pryor and, you know, after the show, uh -huh. we're driving to the next thing. And we, oh, you're going to love it. And I'm thinking, that's encouraging. You know? uh -huh. Okay, here, let's do the next song, you know. That's why, that's why I love you. And he and I sing together harmony like. Really? Oh, my God. Lennon McCartney? Yeah. I mean, yes. we were Lennon McCartney. But, man, did we blend. I sang on every song, on any every record that Andrew ever made. I was his harmonizer, you know. Really? Yeah. I mean, you look at those records. I'm. I'm I have the Andrew Gold box set of okay. all four of his well, albums. I'm going to go get it. You'll see the smog tones. Kenny Edwards, Andrew, and Brock. You know, no way. Uh, so anyway, the third time he goes, you're going to love it. You're going to see Monty uh, Python in this. I go, Andrew, you keep saying I'm going to love it. I'm, 
do I have the job? He goes, oh, yeah, of course you got the job. You sing good. You look good. You, you know, you know, uh, of course, you seem nice. Let's go. I said, excuse me, went into the bathroom, closed the door, looked in the mirror and went. <laughs> yeah. out he said, do you want some Coke? And I oh. said, yes, I'll have one. Uh, ooh. No, 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 not that kind of Coke. Well, what would you okay. know when you're a 21 yes. year old? That's true. Now, didn't you produce Thank You for Being a Friend or have something to do with it? Yeah. yeah. So, I, do you I, get I mechanical royalties on that as well? Less probably than Andrew. Yeah, that's on All This in Heaven, too, right? Yes. Yeah. That's my favorite Andrew yeah. Ralph. So, I co produced that with Andrew. Although, of course, we went through the it'll say produced with Brock Walsh, not and Brock Walsh. Oh. Sure, whatever fine weird yeah. and you know well i suggested why not use but uh, <laughs> produced by andrew gold but brock Walsh. oh that's like we hear about people fighting for credits in movies who gets to be when they run out the full cast and jack nicholson or well, whatever you know though. that means you're yeah that that's what I'm, well, I'm trying to put a positive spin on what you just said. So let me ask you though. So did you see any of the windfall of mailbox money from Golden Girls or no? No, no, that no. goes to the writer. Well, I didn't know if you got some kind of other performance royalty or perf mechanical or whatever. made a little money, but you know. Okay, no. If that record didn't sell millions of copies. No, I know. Millions, I would have, you know, I think yeah. I had one point on that record. Okay. I love that record. Urania is on that. And... 100 million billion stars up in the sky. Each one looks so beautiful, reflected in your eyes. I wonder if there could be life up there. A perfect world evolving anywhere. Such problems on their hands Nothing to believe in And fear divides the land Can it be so unhappy everywhere? Is there a place where everybody can? for a while tell me everything about the writing of automatic because i am i believe that it remains one of the most likable songs hit songs ever i feel like it's anytime it comes on there's no one that ever is saying i'm sick of that song i never liked that one it still sounds fresh it still sounds different and uh and you wrote it and i and i've always wondered when he wrote it, did he mean for it to sound like this robotic thing that it is? Did he mean for it to go to the Pointer Sisters? Because it sounds like it could have gone to Depeche Mode or anyone else. Tell me about the process of Automatic. Really simple. 
let's go back to the MCA Music Demo Dungeon, which was an incubator for lots of really fun music coinciding with the onset of the 80s and the Lindrum machine and a bunch of synthesizers, you know, the, the profit and so, uh-huh. so forth and and the presence of all these talented musicians and songwriters with whom I got to work, one of whom is Mark Goldenberg, who is really, he's different from, he's, I'm not saying necessarily more talented, super talented. He had that in common with a number of other people who were present there, but he's a very unique uh, individual, Uh very different and interesting. You know, we were all creating together and, I don't know what Mark had heard that this is the first song that Mark and I wrote together. Mm. You know, it was one of the only, I think we wrote three songs. We only wrote a couple of songs after automatic. Mm. You'll have to ask Mark if there's any reason behind it. I don't think so. I think it's just because we got busy with other people, me with Quincy and him with uh, his group, the Cretones and and so forth. Um, Anyway, Mark came to me and said, I have this guitar lick. You know, it just immediately summoned the idea of this sort of mechanistic, robotic quality. Um, And I set about writing the lyric and I brought it to him and he liked it a lot. And we made the demo in down under MCA music. Uh, Tommy Farragher mm. played on it. Um, trying to remember who else. I think it was just a, oh no, it was the TR-808. We had just gotten the Roland TR-808 or not, not long before. And that thing, that machine has such a vibe. Uh-huh. Um, What I, you know, I remember we were, by the way, the demo is available. You should, have you ever heard the demo? No. Ooh, I got to go find oh. this. Oh yeah. It's, a, and I can help you if you need it. Um, it's extremely similar to the I record. believe it. I could see well, that. Because Mark, because Mark and I, or did Mark also co-produce that record with Richard Perry? You'll have to mm, check the, the uh, will. credits. I know I got. I was there the whole time. And anyway, um, Richard Perry heard that song, you know, the, the call had gone out for that pointer sisters record. And I, and Richard heard it and called me and Richard for all of his odd characteristics. And they are very odd. Mm. Uh, indeed. He's a real musician and he can, he's got a terrific sense of ears he's mm-hmm. a terrific ear mm-hmm. and uh he got how quirky and interesting that lyric was you know mm-hmm. i mean the r- lyric was written from particularly put in the mouth of june pointer oh yeah and the day 
Richard said, I, you know, I want you to come and do the track. Hey, I want, you know, production credit. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll share it with you. Great. Here we go. This is like yeah. a vehicle to, you know, and a chance to work with the pointer sisters. I got to the studio with the TR 808 mm-hmm. and, uh, I'm pretty sure Tommy Farragher came in to do, Oh, and Dennis Herring played the guitar. Mm. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I can see little. I can see Dennis sitting in the studio, drumming away. Uh, I said to, I called Richard and I said, Richard, we never talked about key. What key mm. to cut this in? Because I sang the demo. Mm. He goes, uh, 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 we'll do it in the same key. And I went like, that can't be. You're not going to have a, an alto sing it in the same. <laughs> and he goes, no, it's the same key. I went, you know, okay. So we cut the song, and as I recall, by the way, rest in peace, Anita. Mm-hmm. Ruth, Bonnie, right? Who, who's who's still with us? I think June is the only one still with us. Oh, yeah, maybe June is the... Anyway, Anita came in to sing, and she couldn't sing it. Mm-hmm. And they gave it to June because she's got the lowest voice, mm-hmm. which contributed to this weird absolutely totally weird yes almost baritone quality to a female black female singer you know compared to what what is it you know so um it was all very unlikely and very serendipitous and fortunately it worked oh and the only the only sad part about it is, oh, and when you hear the demo and you hear the record, you'll see that there is great similarity. Of course, mm. with the Pointer Sisters singing, it's way better, hopefully. Uh, however, they won the Grammy for vocal arrangement. <clears throat> Excuse me, you won the Grammy for what? <laughs> Let's put the, the demos up and A, B them, shall we? <laughs> Granted, there are some differences between uh-huh. the vocal arrangements, but I was there. <laughs> so, um, anyway, it was one of those times where I felt a little gypped, but yeah. my better angels tapped me on the shoulder and said, Brock, you know, this yeah. is good. Let it go. Um so when you anyway, wrote it, it wasn't intended for the Pointer Sisters. You're writing it in that stable, and it's uh, this might be too indelicate a way to say it, but it's basically going on a pile of other demos. There's a bunch of songs there written by I people. Think we were thinking about the Pointer Sisters, you know? Oh, because really? Because it doesn't time, sound like a Pointer Sisters song. That's that marriage is what's so interesting about it. Yeah, well, it doesn't sound. It didn't sound like the last record, but that's not the job. Yeah, I, okay. job is to write the next record, not the yeah. not the one you heard. Good point. Um, at the same time, Glenn Ballard and I wrote Dance Electric, and Robbie Neville and I wrote Contact. Contact yeah. ended up being the title track of the next album. This ain't just flirtation. 
so yeah, we were thinking about the Pointer Sisters, and you know, I wrote plenty of songs they didn't cut um, as well. I can say that that song has is an evergreen, mm-hmm. both from a royalty standpoint. Thank you mm-hmm. to the heavens for that. Uh, but also, you know, I take your point with great relish. Uh, anytime that song comes on, people smile and yes. and they dig it because there's nothing cynical about it. There's just yeah. this. Oh, when you hear the demo, you will hear a Beatles influenced bridge, you know, which is Mark's great. Mark Goldenberg's great compositional, harmonic, weird, key changing everything. <laughs> I put to it a Beatles like Yellow Submarine, where the organs of the body were speaking, <laughs> conspiring against the body. You know, to create these embarrassing, to sweat and have a pulse, you know, a racing pulse and um, what else? Uh, You know, skin that was turning, you know, blushing and and so forth. Yeah. You know, olfactory to hippocampus. (laughs) Mayday, mayday. You know, it was a very Beatles type. And I remember um, when we did cut the bridge with the Pointer Sisters, June said, Brock, we ain't doing that, those voices. That's some white shit. And <laughs> I, I, forgive me for the uh, inflection no, in my voice, it's but it's pretty, it's not untrue. Uh, we aren't going to do those voices yes and white shit yeah and i said bless you you know we'll just yeah. go with the instruments but um yeah that's okay i love meanwhile, it meanwhile my kids sing it when we go to karaoke bars and they go <laughs> my dad wrote this song and just go, oh really you know anyway that's i love the story. it i was gonna ask you so many of your songs would be the the singles versions that were recorded would be considered R and B. I mean, you know, you worked with Quincy. There's James. There's, there's the Pointer Sisters. There's plenty of others. Even Robbie. What's it to you? Was, uh, you know, he was a white guy, but he was singing kind of new wave R and B in a way. Was it a 
Right. differently is that something that you feel like you're just naturally good at for some reason brock walsh is good at watch writing songs that would cater to an r&b audience or a white audience or do you write differently is it in the production how does it come out real real easy if you love it uh, if you're deeply enough immersed in it then you can do it uh, then you're not appropriating someone else's true. culture, yeah, you know, yeah, if true. you love it, if you really, really uh-huh. love it. Uh-huh. Um, at the same time, I would never uh, dream of writing hip hop because yeah, I don't, of course, I, a, I don't love it. Uh-huh. I mean, I did love some stuff about it, but yeah. I, mean, I respect it, mm-hmm. but I don't love it. And I don't, I'm not part of it. So I yeah. would never dare to, of course. to live there. Yeah. But nobody loved dancing to Stevie Wonder any more than I did or Aretha Franklin. I mean, granted, black people may have a, do have a different ownership yes. of some cultural Total. aspect of it. But as it pertains to a music lover just loving it mm-hmm. and feeling native in its yeah. world. Yeah. I did, and therefore I didn't stop myself from writing whatever felt good at the time, you know? That's right. I mean, what else? I I have issues with this cultural misappropriation or whatever um, that seems to be hot right now. Some of it I don't, obviously. I mean, like white face or black face or whatever is obviously offensive. But how else? I mean, we're just inspired by what we're inspired by. I had Jerry Harrison on here a while ago from uh, The Talking Heads, obviously. His first solo album is very African. And of course there's Remain in Light that's very African. And there are a bunch of white art students from Rhode Island or whatever, you know? And I just think, are you just, if if I'm feeling inspired by Fela Kuti or by Stevie Wonder or what, can't, I'm not trying to be those people, but can't they, can't their inspiration seep into what I'm doing? That's fair. I think it? your behavior, not yours in particular, right. but our behavior and our choices reflect yeah. whether or not our participation in anything is belonged or misappropriated. Yes. You know, right. nobody has ever raised to my knowledge what is what are the what is this frankly a, a Jewish mm-hmm. Mark Goldenberg and an Irish Brock Walsh mm-hmm. 
uh, doing mm-hmm. wandering around in Pointer Sisters world. You know, right. nobody's right. nobody's going like you're misappropriating because it's done with love and respect. That's it. And it's kind of cool and weird. Yeah. So you either earn it or you don't. And I yeah. think the respect that you communicate unspoken is mm-hmm. clear. Yeah. And as a writer, I would hope my love and respect for, you know, I've, can I just say on this subject, if you're going to air any of this, we're both in trouble and that's fine. <laughs> I'm used to being in trouble. Um, I hope, but because we will be opening ourselves uh-huh. to criticism and some of it may be deserved from the outside. I have worked with, and I won't name them, mm. but I have worked with white producers who have readily employed R&B inflected music to sell their white artists who privately have said terribly racist things about black people. And I sat slack jawed for a moment and then got into arguments with them in the coffee shops. Sure. uh, The day after the gig the night before or the session going, how can you possibly say that? You know, so it's, it's real. It's misappropriation is real. And, you know, I never want to be part of that. I want to show uh, respect. Absolutely. I, just when you, there's so much happening out there that I don't understand or even comprehend sometimes. That's crazy. Um, okay. Well, let's, I wanted to, let me ask you about another great black artist. And that's Aaron Neville. And you wrote, I can't imagine, which was on the truth about cats and dogs soundtrack. I own, and uh, mm-hmm. I haven't listened to it in a long time, but I used to play it a lot in the 90s because it had Ranking Roger and Ben Folds 5 and Squeeze and a lot of other bands I really loved on it. And mm-hmm. um, how did that come about? And is that another situation where you write a song knowing Aaron Neville is going to pick it up? Or Aaron is it... Neville was a writer on... on, on wait I can't imagine. Song? I can't imagine, yeah. yeah. Aaron Neville is a writer. I'll tell you why. Oh, yes. I have worked with producer Steve Lindsay many times on many different projects. Steve and I are mutual 
have a great mutual respect. I for his musicianship and ear and music. He's a great producer too because he lets the best musicians achieve the, what they're capable of achieving. And he he loves great writing. And he frequently has called me into because he's appreciative of my lyrical okay. capabilities. Okay. So he was going to work with Aaron, and he said, "Come with me to New Orleans and meet Aaron." So we did. We went to New Orleans together and we met Aaron. He was very gracious, very nice. We went to his house. Uh, Oddly, a big house on a golf course in New Orleans, which seemed a little out of character, but okay. You know, I'm Uh a golfer. so. And after a couple of days of hanging out together and talking about music, Aaron invited me to read his book of lyrics. He has a he had a book of lyrics, and I thought, well, obviously the choice here is for if I can have access to this and read through it, I can find things that inspire me mm-hmm. and take your idea and expand it. Uh-huh. And he went great, and he had a song called "I Can't Imagine." He had a title of a uh-huh. poem or a lyric called "I Can't Imagine." Uh, and I took it and I wrote it and it used some of his words and used some of my words and, uh, it was killer. It was unbelievable yeah. working with him. I mean, he's not of this world. No, he's not of this world. His, no. his particular talent is not explained by no. humanly. It's true. Uh, ability yes. so anyway that was a great honor and, and pleasure to work with him and uh, i subsequently wrote some other songs which he cut um which he was not involved in the writing of but uh, uh, it was incredible wow um i have a I th- we may have talked about this before i don't remember i have sort of a mild uh obsession with movie soundtracks and you also wrote a song for paul davis on the about last night soundtrack that's Ed um, Wick again. Yes, that's right, it is. Uh, if we can get through the night. Leave it to us to take a long look and rush right into the arms of danger. Little is said, though we hang by a thread over is an omen we could fall any moment dropping like stone from the sky and though we may not survive And I, I used to watch that movie a lot when I was a kid because 
Demi Moore was naked in it a lot. She was super hot. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, but I still love that movie. I, and I own the, the soundtrack too. Do you remember anything about that session or working with Paul? But he's another one. Paul, I love Paul. He's not here anymore either. He's been gone for a while. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'd be lying if I said I had a really sharp and distinct mm -hmm. memory of the time. Wh what I remember was that it was Ed's first movie. It, that's, yeah, I, uh, think I think so. About Last Night was a rewrite of Sexual Perversion in Chicago. David right? Mamet. Yep. David Mamet. And a very soft focus <laughs> rewrite of it. Um, and I'm, but I'm no harder edge than that interpretation was at the time. And, and I got, it was an invitation from Ed to, uh, you know, to write that song and be, be on the soundtrack. And I took it real seriously yeah. and somehow it worked, you know, I mean, all, yeah. any of these soundtracks, it's, it's so serendipitous that who ends up on it and who doesn't it's as yeah. much political as it is musical yeah and and i had my political ducks lined up i had my friendship with ed and that's I true the, that'll do it i was the beneficiary of yeah. that friendship basically. that'll do it yeah that's true i've forgotten about ed being involved in that movie so did you um so you didn't sounds like you didn't interact much with paul he just kind of he ended up singing the song you wrote did you write it for him intentionally did you know when you wrote it no, no. okay no. i think he was put with the song because he came in from some other door yeah. hey we'd like to have this guy oh well this guy doesn't have a singer yep. he's a yeah. you know so yeah we were sense. slapped together like an arranged marriage yeah. <laughs> so another song i gotta ask you about is no secrets from the secret admirer soundtrack one of my listeners who's also a good friend of mine jason Pollack, um he uh sent me a mixed cd of songs that he thought i would like and that song was on it and when i got ready to talk to you i told him that i was going to speak with the guy who wrote no secrets and he sent me this whole voicemail of how when that when that movie came out he had a vhs of it and back in the day you can't you know it's too hard to get music and or you know you can't just pull it up whenever you want so he called every record store within like an hour of his house and one place 45 minutes away had it on cassette the soundtrack to on cassette so he drove out in florida to buy the cassette and then he took the long way home so that he could just listen to no secrets on repeat the entire drive back to his house and uh it's still just like you know that when you're young, back in the 80s, and you love a song, you got to wait for it to play on the radio. I want to point out a factual slip-up in his story. Oh, okay. How do you put a cassette player on repeat? Did they, <laughs> did they have that, or do, have I, I... He's probably just rewinding it. Because okay, it's, I think, right. the first track on the tape, right? So you press play, oh, okay. well, and it plays, easy. and then that's it rewinds. Easy. So tell me the story of No Secrets while I clean up the water I just spilled a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, since your email that we were going to talk about this, I've, I've chewed on it a few times trying to piece together whatever I can remember. And as best I can recall, 
this was what year was this? Eighty four, I believe. Eighty eighty four. Yeah. So, and I don't know. <laughs> Automatic was in eighty four too. I think. Oh yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think I had begun to get opportunities. You know, we were on the lot at MCA Universal as staff writers of Universal Music. And that was, of course, with a number of other super talented, Robbie Neville, mm-hmm. Glenn Ballard, Mark Goldenberg, a bunch of people, Steve Diamond. We had begun to get phone calls from the adjacent building that did Universal Pictures. Mm. Is this a Universal Picture? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> this is such an untrustworthy narrator you've chosen, John. <laughs> But I'm give, I'm doing my best. I got a call to read a script. And to me, you know, in 1984, I was uh, 31 years old. Um, there was nothing more exciting to me than reading a script and then almost instantaneously leaping to an idea about, you know, uh-huh. it would be a great song for this is, you know, in fact, if you've ever seen Bowfinger and you yeah. saw the scene with Steve Martin ex- getting the FedEx <laughs> delivery at the end, you know, it's like, uh-huh. I've arrived. Someone uh-huh. sent me a script for my opinion. <laughs> there was something so thrilling. I mean, of course, I'll be able to go to the theater and hear my song in a theater. Uh-huh. is like even better than riding in my car and hearing a Song uh-huh. on the radio because you can go anytime you want, and, right. you know. Um, so anyway, the star of that who was the star? Steve the, Thomas Howell was the male yeah, star, female, Kelly Preston and Lori Laughlin. Oh my god, Lori Laughlin, right? Who got in trouble with the college thing a few years ago? Hell yes, <laughs> <laughs> we won't. Go there. Okay. Um, I, you know, Lori Laughlin, was there anybody cuter? She was like a, the Annette Funicello of yeah. 1984. Perfectly said. Perfectly you know, said. she was just so deliciously cute. Yeah. Oh, my God, I could have a song in this movie. Um, read the script. Went home. As I said, we were staff writers at Universal, so I'm sure within 48 hours I had booked studio time and um cut it instantly that that was the other great thing about being a staff writer there if you can deliver a song specifically written for a picture in 48 hours upon having right after having received the script Uh you got a leg up yeah you say well you could you just you just read the scripts like i know i I went (laughs) home and i wrote the song and i cut it yesterday Yesterday, here it is. So uh, that's is that's uh, the only other part I'll tell you, and it's I think it's completely coincidental. Years later, you know there are such things as residual checks, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And specifically, the ones that I receive are as a singer, not as a as a songwriter. You get your royalties through mm-hmm. ASCAP and BMI. Uh, ASCAP in my case. But as a singer of commercials for many years, 
I still get residual checks. And back in the mid-90s or the early aughts, I began getting residual checks for Lori Laughlin at my address. What? And it was like, what's going on? So I, you know, I called SAG and I said, uh -huh. you know, please fix. Lori doesn't live here, sadly. Um, uh, please redirect her checks. And they went, oh, I said, what shall I do with a check I've got? What can you give me her address? <laughs> they said, yes. Really? Put it in a bigger envelope, put a note in it. Dear Lori, you know, <laughs> funny coincidence. <laughs> I wrote the song and you started the move. I got your check. Seriously, by accident. Wow. And I'm wow. sending to you. <laughs> Shocker of all time, no response. Well, <laughs> she never wrote back and said thank you or invited over you over for brunch or whatever. No. Oh, come on. Oh, man. Okay, last question about this song. Do you remember anything about Van Stevenson? Did you know him? Because I kind of, he was, one, no, you're shaking your head no. <laughs> no. no, man, uh, I okay. wish I could help. I would be purely inventing. No, that's totally fine. He died a while ago, but he's one of those names that would show up on a lot of 80s soundtracks like this. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, as you know, that's kind of my thing. And so I just wondered what his story was and if you two actually collaborated. No. Okay. I just got a couple more. Earth, Wind & Fire are in my top 10 favorite bands of all time. I think maybe we talked about them a little bit, but you have two songs, I think, on the Millennium album, which is a strong album, but it's past peak e Earth, Wind & Fire period. Um, how did you popularity. Get Pop that's true, yes. Peak popularity. The album is great. Um, I don't know that that many people even know about it. How did you get into the Earth, Wind & Fire tribe? Uh, first of all, let me just say it is one of the creative peaks. Uh, no, emo the satisfaction peaks yes. of my writing to be able to work with um, Maurice White. I believe it. My late friend, John Lind. Mm. Johnny was a dear, dear friend of mine. Uh, we were soulmates in, on some level. When we wrote a song, when he wrote the music and I wrote the words, boy, it was just something powerful was unleashed. Uh, if you've never heard the song Leave a Light On, you know, go go dig that one up. Okay. Um, it's, it was in a bunch of Disney stuff. Yeah. Um, Johnny and Bob Cavallo had a long time relationship with Maurice. Okay. And Johnny had a... a John Lind had a long relationship too with Earth, Wind, and Fire. Try oh, Boogie Wonderland. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so when it came time for the Millennium album, uh, John reached out to me. Uh, there was another writer involved. I believe his name is Nikki Harris, keyboard player, mm. uh, quite talented also. Uh, they asked me to write the lyrics, and I did. Oh, we have three songs on that record. Uh, Chi Town Blues, Blood Ch Brothers, and Every Now and Then. 
Oh, I didn't remember. I didn't remember that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What an honor, Brock. Jeez. Oh, I mean, my God. Well, just you to be able to know, say here's this. Here's the honor. Here's the honor. I met Maurice. Uh-huh. And you know that fe- feeling when you go and you meet one of your heroes. And most times people are disappointed. Yeah. Because their heroes don't live up to their um, yeah. impression formed in their absence. Yeah. I went up and met Maurice and he basically named my discography. He said, I love what you do so much. Your, your lyric writing. And I was, I mean, I remember when I met Randy Newman and he knew who I was. I almost fainted. I had to, I I went, I excused myself and had to sit down because I was so overwhelmed. I wasn't that overwhelmed when it was much older when I met Uh Maurice. But he invited me to his home to to get to know him so that in writing for him, I might better reflect his values and his interests and so forth, which led to a couple of days learning about his childhood. And I said, you know, let's write a song. He he told the story about um, him, he and Booker T., being kids together, teenagers together. What? Uh, well, listen to uh, Chi Town Blues.
Booker yeah. T's at the front door. Telling me time to go. I never, never thought Old of it being literal. Mother Blues tonight. Oh, my gosh. 53rd to Lakeshore. Cruising in the diner flow. Ain't no way they'll let us play. But then again, they might. Yeah. Uh, it's a story of he and Booker T going to Mother Blues and play, sitting in as 13-year-olds. Oh, my god! I mean, I said to him, Maurice, that song, I mean, if if you never have a bi- biography written of you, and yes. I hope you do, uh, I'm going to write that story so you can sing that story and, Holy and have it cow. partially told. Anyway, that and Blood Brothers, yeah. which is all about... Bonding, yeah, of course. Humanity bonding. I was just listening to it before we hopped on. Yeah, I love that. Song. Oh my god, that those songs still make me cry. I mean, yeah. the, the heart, the musicality yeah. of those songs is just ungodly. Uh, anyway, it was one of the honors of my life to work with Maurice, to be taken into his confidence and t- into his bosom, yes. to share his, uh, you know, oldest secrets and yeah. stories and. You know, I'm kind of a Boswell. I, I I would like to think of myself as the Boswell. You know, the guy who who's kind of a nerd who <laughs> who is interested in the real stories of people's lives, but who can still play go for the soul. Yeah. Of, of stuff, but yeah. to tell real stories about real things. Anyway, I love it. I love it. What a career. Um, tell me about Harvard. I can't remember. You went to Harvard as a, a on an athletic scholarship, right? But came out a golfer? Or did you go in a golfer? And get, what's the story here? I'm trying to remember. Fortunately, we're doing this by Zoom because I'm radioactive. No. Um, <laughs> this story takes way too long to tell, but I'll tell it super briefly. Okay. Okay. And it starts in elementary school. Oops. 
Oops. Yeah, we <laughs> okay. don't have time. Sorry, Brock, and now a word from Texaco. Um, we're graduating sixth grade. Stories of coming back from our classmates one year older, that, and we're all the athletes. Uh-huh. Stories are coming back from the middle school that the football coach is a sadist. Don't go out for football, which we were all intending to do. Coincidentally, that year, soccer was introduced into my school district. Uh, you can do the math. I'm going into seventh grade. So I guess I'm 12 years old. That would be 1965. Okay. Um, so the day of the tryouts for middle school athletics, which took place on the athletic field of the elementary school, the sixth grade athletes, all of my bros, 13 or 15 of us, walked past the football coach, who I won't name. He's deceased and his uh-huh. family would not appreciate it. But we walked past the sadist uh-huh. and walked over to the Nebuchadnezzar science teacher who had been assigned to be the soccer coach in the middle school who knew nothing of the game and the football coach nearly busted an aneurysm when he saw his 15 best athletes walk past him screaming at me i'm gonna call your father and i'm like um we long story short we went out for soccer and in the six years that followed our football programs and our soccer programs went like this oh boy okay uh our soccer and we went and played in the new york state finals high school finals and the papers we lost to austin a group of hispanic players who were way more talented and way more skilled we were more like a scene out of braveheart ah you know standing on the hilltop going like and we're yes. coming for you, you know, but we were fearsome, you know. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, we lost the game. The press went looking for a hero. I was the captain. I was also uh-huh. a good player. Uh-huh. And I was elected to the high school All-America team. This happened in March of my senior year, after which the application process was done. I probably shouldn't tell the story yeah. as a former Harvard admissions <laughs> officer, but I've told them and they all chuckled. That's how we did it in the 70s. Um, I Xeroxed, was that technology even in place in 1971? Well, Maybe not. I copied the news story, put it in a seven envelopes and sent it to the seven Ivy League schools. Went and visited my high school girlfriend who was a freshman at Brown when I was a high school senior. Mm. Well, I can only imagine how tired your audience is listening <laughs> to the story. If this even makes it this to is the great. broadcast. This is um, great. I call my parents on Sunday night saying I'm on my way home. They say, no, you're going to Cambridge. The Harvard just wrote they want to meet you. So I get in the car. I guess on Sunday afternoon and drive and meet two Harvard admissions officers, both of whom remain my friends to this day, carrying my acoustic guitar because uh-huh. I didn't want to leave it in the car. And I took it to Brown because I heard uh-huh. throw it in front of my girlfriend. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, and they said, you know, okay. They asked me my SAT. They asked me my, GPA, don't lie about this. We're gonna we're gonna have to send your transcript. Send us your transcript and your 
have the college board send us your SAT scores, you're in. Went to my high school, went to my high school counselor. Guess what? He didn't like me very much. Oh. I wasn't a very likable kid to the administration in high school because I just didn't give a shit. <laughs> um, and I just did, I did my thing, you know. Uh-huh. Um, he said, Brock, and I'm not going to send your transcript to Harvard. Don't do it. I said, please. You know, they asked. So he had to do it. Ten days later, I had the parchment. They used to have handwritten calligraphy, your full name and and then threw it on his. I said, I heard from Harvard. He goes, hey, Brock, don't worry. Oswego. I was like, I got it, motherfucker. <laughs> you know. OK, so I went. I played soccer at Harvard. Was a musician there too. I was not a golfer at Harvard. I wasn't a golfer when I came out. I've been a lifelong golfer, but I'm that's a whole other story. Okay. It's okay. Too, too long to get into. Um, and whilst some of my team soccer teammates from Harvard went on to professional careers, I don't think I mean I'll never know whether or not I would have made it or not, but I opted for music instead. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah whenever i there's not i mean i told you before we ever interacted like this that you need a website or something i don't think there's even a brock walsh wikipedia page so i'm just there searching isn't. everything i can find for brock walsh information and a Why lot of it I says pay you, to, pay you to create it <laughs> maybe maybe well that's why i was kind of excited to do this because i feel like here's the brock walsh documentation you know, here it is. This is the Brock Walsh story as well as well, we can tell nobody's it. nobody's been interested previously. <laughs> I'm interested. I'm the guy. Um, yeah, everything I would find would say that, uh, how into golf you are. And I've, I was like, wow, I wonder what that means, what the story for that is. I'm a terrible self-promoter. Well, yeah, but you've done so many cool things. It should be documented somewhere, you know? If I knew how to get on Wikipedia, I would do it, but. Well, anyway, we'll find a way. Um, okay. okay, last thing. Okay, I'm going to leave it up to you to tell me what story I haven't asked you about that is super interesting and one of your favorites. I will say I'm mildly interested in your Sheena, in working with Sheena Easton because I find her interesting. The song is a little slow and ballady, too ballady for me, but I am interested in her so if you want to tell me about no no sheena okay i uh, if you're going to give me one story we one place we haven't gone i know what it is in my heart okay. it is the peak it is my peak emotional peak tell okay? me tell me when i worked for quincy i had the honor of meeting a number of Brazilian songwriters, foremost among them, Ivan Nins. But in addition, Javan, yeah. Milton Nascimento, and a host of other, I won't say lesser known, uh, yeah. they're known to whatever extent, because in Brazil they're known. Him. Anyway, Ivan, who nobody knows about, you may never have heard. Have you ever heard of Ivan Nins? No, but and you are. I know Jovan, but I don't know. Yeah, you are a tapped in mofo. (laughs) You here's the here's my gift to you. Okay, you're you're about to go take a look at Yvonne Linz, and you're about to hear 
a talent like Mozart, a talent so much a composer, so much, so talented, I won't compare, but so talented and so of a different, you know, there are tiers of talent. There's, you know, there's Stevie Wonder and Aretha and Ray (laughs) Charles and Elton John and Lennon and McCartney and, you know, yeah. Cole Porter, you know, they're, they're the, the people who just like ascend to a level higher than everybody else to whom I never compare myself. I never yeah. think I'm no Cole Porter. I'm no Lennon and McCartney. I'm a yeah. working you- class. I am a hardworking, working class guy who loves music and has managed to break through to a couple of things that are near great, if not but not that stuff. You Yvonne did do the Lee. fast forward soundtrack though. So oh, let's bro, anyway. Come on, could... <laughs> I'm gonna smack you now. Yvonne Linz sits at the top of all of that. When okay. you hear these melodies. So anyway, I went and heard these melodies at Conway Recording Studio. Go meet Yvonne Linz. And he plays here is here are some and here are the records with Brazilian lyrics and vocals on them in their original uh-huh. form. Tell me which ones you would be interested in writing English lyrics to. I fucking wept yes. when I heard this stuff. I mean, it was like the thought that I would be the curator, the yeah. keeper of uh, the creator of the English lyric that lived with this melody in perpetuity was like being dubbed you yes. are, you know, given your knighthood or yes. something. I leave you with one title and ask that you maybe end this. Yes. <laughs> end this with Yvonne Lynn singing Evolution. Okay. Because that melody and that lyric, I consider the the finest thing that i have offered humanity and really? i know that sounds incredibly pompous and no i apologize that's the best i got and working with those guys uh, i'll also mention miss Susanna, which is a slave song written from the standpoint of a an accused slave and i asked a black brazilian to sing a song and i told him the song and he went Good. I want to do that. And then oh. thank God he said that. Javan said that because he just as soon could have said, "Listen to me, white boy." Exactly. Shit and yeah, hit, hit the road. Yeah. Um, they enabled. They gave me complete freedom to write whatever I want, and I wrote the toughest, oh. most political. Uh, you know, Brazil yeah. was run by a junta for a long time, and Ivan told me the story that many of the lyrics written in the in the original Portuguese were written sideways because you couldn't write about the political situation. So one of the titles, I forget what it is in Portuguese, but the it has two meanings. One is wine glass, and the other meaning is silence. And the song is called Wine Glass, Wine Glass, I Don't Want to Hold You, you know, because when I hold you, I feel like a terrible person. I'm neither the yes. melody nor the lyric, but it is right. a concept. But it was a song about 
political repression, right? So I knew they were open to interesting, harder hitting, more serious subject yeah. matter in evolution. It's only the future of humanity that's yeah. being written about. Sorry, that's <laughs> all from me. Mic drop. Really? Okay. I love Brazilian music, and I didn't. I've never heard of Ivan. Ivan You're Lins. dead. You are now oh. your little feet are sticking up in the air like this. When you okay. hear this stuff. Okay. I just wrote it down. I'm going to listen as soon as we hang up. Okay. Uh, Brock, I think you're special. I just do. I love so much of what you put out in the world. And, uh, Man, me, me too, bro. I, I really do. I, I appreciate it so much. And I've always wondered what the Brock Walsh story is. And uh, from hearing Paper Doll to Automatic to everything else. And now I know. And I'm very grateful you shared it with me. Thank you. He's just a guy who got away with murder forever <laughs> that's of. that's my story the kind luckiest of. person on earth that's kind all. of that's it all right there you have it brock walsh seriously how much fun was that i loved every second of that conversation now maybe it was a bunch of obscure pop culture touch points that only really mattered to me and that's why i enjoyed it so much but i just i don't know how you can't come away from that not just fully in love with Brock and how funny and how great he is. Harvard-educated athlete turned into a solo, a, a rock star that didn't happen, so he became a songwriter, works with all of these fantastic people on all these crazy out-there-but-pop-culturally-relevant projects that we some of us still think about and talk about, and he's the glue of all of that. I loved it. So anyway, I wanted to close it out at per his recommendation with Evolution by Yvonne Lean. And this is the song that he was just super proud of, and I don't blame him. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I loved Brock and this conversation. Now, next week, well, I had mentioned that we were kind of doing a string of like 90s bands. We had Louise Post from Veruca Salt last week. We have Dean from Collective Soul this week. Next week is the front man of a band... <laughs> They're, I don't even quite know how to describe them. They were a much bigger deal in the UK than they were in America. Uh, straddled that late 80s, early 90s time frame. Had a number one song and a huge coming out in the early 90s in the UK, but never really translated over here. So all you Anglophiles out there will know who they are and might think it's interesting. Everyone else, I hope you just find out the there's a great guy here to talk, to listen to because the stories are endless. Okay. Anyway, that's what's coming up next week. Huge thanks as always to Yan, the man, Makevich, my right hand man for everything. Folks, you can like our Facebook page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at the at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at the hustle pod. And, uh, Yan understandably was not able to get the deep dive out this last week, but hopefully this upcoming week, that's what's coming up. Okay. And it's a big one too. It's an album that sold like 20 million copies. Okay, thanks everybody. We love you. All except for one distinction. We can stop our own extinction. We have set ourselves apart from all that's come before us. Fundamental, we are victims of our own design. 
your chance, Tyrannosaurus. Maybe we can get it right this time. Grab a club and leave the chorus. Evolution is a state of mind.